Welcome back to the Beach Catholic Podcast. On this episode, we resume our series, God's Not Dead, and we tackle a little bit different uh, topic than we have on our previous episodes. This one is more about the church, why the church, and why, especially now in a time of great division and scandal, why we need this church and why this church is the one true church. Hope you enjoy. Good evening, everyone. Thanks for being here. Uh, this is our third, third night of God's Not Dead. Um, the first two nights were great. We had one out here and one at uh, Miraculous Meadow in the Grotto. And we're lucky enough to be with Father Brian as usual, but also welcome back uh, Deacon Dominic. Uh, let's put a round of applause for Deacon Dominic being back. So don't, don't ask too hard of questions for Deacon Dominic on his, his night back. So uh, tonight's purpose is to talk about the church. The first two nights that we talked about uh, the proofs of God and then the proofs of the resurrection and questions about God. Um, but tonight we want to focus in on the church. And, you know, when I was in college, I had a f- philosophy class and the philosophy teacher was very, very smart, clearly way more advanced than any of these freshmen that I was with. And I remember him asking all of the students, he went to every single student and said, what do you believe in? Like, what's your faith? Do you go to church? All these kind of questions. And I remember waiting for him to get to me, and I wanted to be proud and say, yeah, I'm Catholic. I was raised Catholic. I went to Catholic school. I'm going to say, you know, I was, I'm Catholic. So he came to me. I said, you know, I'm Catholic. And then he said, what do you believe? And in my head, I was like, oh, no, I don't, I don't know what to say. I believe in Jesus. I believe in that he rose from the dead. And And that was kind of it. I didn't really know what else to say about what I believed in. And that's what these nights are really about, that we can kind of take away some practical beliefs that we can go out into the world and proclaim with confidence. So we know that we are created, uh, God created everything. We created each each person on purpose and with a purpose. We know that we sin and that humans turned away from God but that Jesus saved us, he redeemed us on the cross, and that we're called to convert, we're called to turn towards God and away from sin. But lastly, kind of the last part of our beliefs is in the church, that we can go to the church for the sacraments to have a real-life encounter with the God of the universe, with Jesus Christ and the sacraments. And about six years ago, there's a kind of popular movie that came out uh, called Unbroken. It was a a pretty popular book as well. Amazing, amazing story of Louis Zamperini. Um, He was an uh, Olympic athlete, 1936. um, I believe he won a medal in that Olympics as well. And then later on, he fought in World War II. And while he was fighting, his plane was shot down over the Pacific Ocean. And he spent 47 days on a raft with two other soldiers until he was rescued but he was rescued by the Japanese. And the Japanese threw Louis into a prisoner camp where he would spend the next two years of his life. And the movie and the book goes through this terrible, terrible suffering that he endured in these prison camps. And how this, specifically this one guard really had it out for him to kind of embarrass and mock this American Olympic athlete. And there's a really powerful scene in, in the movie where Louis is given this big wooden beam to hold. And the prison guard says, 
if he drops the beam, he tells the guard next to him, if he drops that beam, shoot him and kill him. And Louis's been through like a year and a half of torture and beatings. He's extremely weak. You can even see it in his physique. And if he drops the beam, he's going to be, he's going to be shot and killed. We want to show you that scene and what happens. So let's play that scene. If he drops it, shoot it. it's um, a really powerful scene of what someone can endure in suffering, but when I was thinking about the church, this scene came to mind, because I think Louis is kind of like the church at times, or how people view the church. Louis, he's tripping, he's, he's wavering, he's, he's weak, 
maybe at his weakest, and it seems like he's, he's going to fall. He's going to die, and it's going to be over. But there's a moment in that scene where you kind of see Louis's eyes, like, focus in. And it's like something, something changes over him, something he's thinking about something. And in the book, we find out it's really he's thinking about what his brother taught him, that no matter what, you can do anything, Louis, that you're, you're stronger than, than what they say you are. And when he focuses all of his strength, he's able to lift up that heavy beam. It's, it's a total, like, Jesus on the cross moment. And I think the church is kind of in that kind of moment now, that people view the church as falling over or going to fall or going to die. It's not strong anymore. It's not what it was. But I think a night like this brings me so much hope when I look around on a Thursday night and see a church full of people who are here not for, not for a priest, not for the pope or a bishop, not for a, a teaching in the church or from the church, that we're here for Jesus Christ. And I think when the church focuses, like Louis focused in that moment, when the church focuses on Jesus, on the cross, we go from our weakest moment to our strongest. And on nights like this, you know, we want to say, to the community and the world around us, you God's not dead. And tonight we want to say, neither is the church. The church is still very much alive. So let's dig a little bit more into what the church is and why we believe in it so much. Thanks, Mike. Um, I know when it comes to the church, uh, you know, you know, we had the first talk about um, God's existence, the second talk about Jesus, and the third talk about the church. And I think the first talk, two talks are kind of easy, right? Because, well, God's perfect, God's all good, God's all loving. And then we get to Jesus, and of course, well, Jesus is both God and he's both man, and he's, he's sinless, he's perfect. And then we get to the church, and we don't quite see maybe the... The, the, the divinity of the church as clearly as we do with God or with Jesus Christ. And I think that the church, I mean, we don't have to go too, we don't look too far back in our history to see how messy the church can be. And it's always been messy. It's been messy. It's been, it was messy 10 years ago. It's messy uh, 50 years ago. It's messy 1,000 years ago. It was messy at the very beginning. I mean, you talk about scandal. Scandal happened uh, in the very beginning of Judas. He's the first scandal of the church. And so I think that obviously that scandals are always a, an issue of concern. I think that it, sometimes it bothers us to the very core because we know there's something wrong with that, that there's something that within the church that is meant to be divine. It's meant to be this light of the world, that is meant to be the shining example of God's presence in the messiness of the world. And when the church fails to do that, then we wonder, well, is Jesus really present in the church? Is he really present in the Eucharist? Can he truly be present in the messiness of our lives? And I say absolutely yes. Yes, he can. Because he was present with the apostles. 
He was present with Judas. Even if Judas betrayed him, Jesus never betrayed Judas. And I think that's always kind of what we have to keep in our mind, especially when we are dealing with the tough issues of scandals within the church. But I speak about the church most, only because I, I've just been ordained a minister for the church as a deacon just about two weeks ago. But I think that what's important to keep in mind was, what was Jesus' mission? We all heard it last, in the last talk, right? His mission was to die for our sins. And it was through his death that he would rise from the dead. Okay. Jesus had to die. He could have done it in a million ways. And we actually, we hear it in the scriptures, right? In the beginning of Luke, King Herod was already after Jesus' head from the moment of his birth. But Herod didn't kill him. He could have, right? Jesus could have, couldn't he have accomplished his mission? If his mission was simply to die and rise, couldn't God's divine plan simply allow Jesus to be killed with the infants, right? We're called with the holy innocence, right? All the, the, he could, couldn't, couldn't that just been the way to fulfill God's plan? Well, no. What about when Jesus was an adult? And we see in the beginning of his ministry, in the beginning of Mark's gospel, when Jesus goes back to his hometown in Nazareth, and he proclaims to the, uh, to the people of his hometown, and, and he says, I've come, to, and I've come to give glad tidings to the poor. I, this is, you know, he reads from the scroll of Isaiah, and he gives his whole prophecy, and this, I am he, I'm the one who would fulfill this prophecy. And all the people in Nazareth are looking at Jesus, and this, guy, this guy's crazy. This can't be it. This can't be, this, isn't he the son of Joseph? Isn't he the ordinary carpenter? And they literally chase him out to the city. They chase him out to the hill. To push and, and, and what it seemed like to be to, to kill him because they were so angry at him. Um, but we hear that Jesus passed through their midst. He walked by them because he wasn't ready to die at that moment. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, was Jesus' sole mission only to die and rise? And the answer is No. Ultimately, yes, ultimately, you know, it's Christ on the cross that fulfills his mission. But what had to happen before his death? What had to happen before Jesus could die on the cross? He had to establish the church. And we know this how. Because we look at Matthew's gospel. In the very beginning, what does he do? What does he do before, you know, he starts to teach. He starts teaching, he starts to reveal the Father, Right? He begins revealing the Father to the people of Israel, to the original covenant people, right? to, to the Jewish people. That's like, that was the very first thing, to reveal the Father and that he is the fulfillment of the scriptures, that everything that was foretold from Genesis all the way to that moment was that he was the fulfillment. So he had to teach that. But how was he going to pass on this teaching? He anointed, he picked 12 men. And uh, let me just let me just read it to you so you know I'm not making it up from Matthew chapter 10. I mean, we all know it, but sometimes we, uh, we, 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 we all take it for granted. And what does it say? Jesus called his 12 disciples together and gave them authority to drive out evil spirits and to heal every disease and every sickness. These are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, called Peter, 
and his brother Andrew, James and his brother John, the sons of Zebedee, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon the Patriot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed Jesus. And right after that list, he sends him out on mission. These 12 men were sent out by Jesus with the following instructions, to go out and to preach the kingdom of heaven is near. He picked 12 men. Any Jewish person from that moment would have known that Jesus was making a power play. Because why, why 12? It wouldn't have escaped the Jewish imagination. It represented the 12 tribes of Israel. The 12 tribes of Israel that began the, the Israel nation. The number 12 comes with a sense of power and authority. And that's what he says. Jesus gave them authority. And so we see that he gives the very authority that he had to say that I'm the fulfillment of the scripture. He gave it to his apostles. He gave it to these 12 men, these very broken men. One's a tax collector. The others are fishermen. These are not the brightest Harvard graduate, Ivy League grads he's picking here. He's picking the lowest people of society, the rejects, because he wanted to show to the people that power and authority comes through weakness. It comes through being humble servants of the gospel. And so, and out of all these 12 men, who is the leader? It's Peter. And when we read in Matthew chapter 16, I think this is the most pivotal chapter in probably almost all the Gospels because it is this moment when Jesus asks them the question, who do people say the Son of Man is? Jesus asks this question to Peter in Caesarea Philippi, which is actually, I was just there back in January. I know before COVID, I was actually in Israel uh, back in January before everything, all this pandemic had started. And I actually got to go to, the very, to Caesarea Philippi, to the very spot that Jesus would have asked that question to Peter. And if you ever a chance, you know, maybe when this pandemic is over to go on pilgrimage to Israel, you would see that in Caesarea Philippi, you have these kind of mountains all over the region. And when Jesus was asking this question, it was before the, the Greek temples. So Caesarea Philippi is kind of outside the Israeli border. Um, so that's why you could have Greek temples, because that's pagan gods. You couldn't have pagan gods in, in, uh, within Israel. But you had these Greek temples. And so when Jesus is asking the, um, the apostle, who do people say that I am, he's standing before all the Greek gods where people are, are performing worship, sacrifices. And if you know anything about pagan um, practice, it wasn't, you know, the most, it's not, it's not let's say, PG-rated, if you want to put it in those kind of terms. Um, and so, but so what does Jesus, what does, so how does Peter answer the question? He says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And when Peter makes that declaration, Jesus gives him the keys of the kingdom, and he says, And so I tell you, Peter, you are the rock, 
and on this rock foundation, I will build my church. This is the only time the word church, ecclesia, gets used in the gospel. And from that moment, when Jesus says, I will build my church on you, Peter, Jesus then speaks about his suffering and death. It is a moment when his church has been established on Peter that now Jesus can now fulfill his mission to die. He couldn't do it in Nazareth. He couldn't do it in Bethlehem. He can only die and rise once the church of Christ has been established on the apostles. And Jesus did this because it was part of his divine plan because he knows that we as human beings are weak, fragile, but that the mission of the church, the mission of the good news that we've been saved and risen had to rest on these 12 broken men because it needs to be his power that shines and not our own. And I think that that the church, as broken as it is, sometimes actually proved its power that if this was a human institution, it would have been destroyed by now. But because of all the scandals, because of everything that's been, that the fact that the church still stands after 2,000 years has to reveal to us there's something deeper going on here that meets the eye. That there has to be something that, there has to be, in a sense, God's presence among these men, among the apostles, that keeps, that gives the power to, to proclaim the gospel to each and every generation to our time. And that we see this, I think, almost important moment in the Last Supper. When Jesus, what does he do? Who does he take? He doesn't take all the disciples. He takes these 12 men, the same 12 men, to the upper room. And he says, take this, all of you, and eat of it. For this is my body given up for you. Do this in memory of me. It was the command that he gave, not to everyone, but to the 12, to those who he had appointed to be leaders of the church. And what was to do? To do this in memory of me, to give us the Eucharist. That is, the Eucharist is so intimately connected to the 12, it's connected to the priesthood of Jesus Christ, and that these 12 men continue on the Eucharist by passing on the holy priesthood to men of every generation, that Father Brian Barr can connect his priesthood 2,000 years ago to those apostles, because those apostles would then lay on hands. We read this in the Acts of the Apostles, that after Judas had betrayed Jesus, they went out, it was so important to have those apostles replaced. So they went out and picked Matthias, the casted lots in the, in the very beginning of Acts, because they knew that this tradition needed to be kept going, and that he laid on those hands on Matthias. And that very shortly after reading chap, in Acts chapter six, that the numbers became too great, that they need to ordain more men. And so they prayed over for deacons. And so that's kind of close to home to me because I was just ordained a deacon two years ago. And Bishop DiMarzio, two years ago, literally, I was in the church and he laid 
his hands on my head. The very same act that those 12 did in the Acts of the Apostles 2,000 years ago, he was done to me, was done to Father Brian, was done to every single priest. That there's a tradition, a lineage that comes on. And who can it come from but Christ himself? That this was his vision, this was his institution, this was what he willed for the church to carry forward with. And this is the mission that he continues to give to us. Why? Because of the Eucharist that it is his body so that Jesus can be within us and that, the, and that the priesthood can continue to be the presence of Christ to the whole world and that this Eucharist can be given to you, that the presence of Christ has, can be within you. And that this is why we have the church. This is why the church exists, as messy as it is, as flawed as it can be, that Jesus took the risk because we were worth it. We were worth it when he died on the cross. We we're worth it now. And so I'll just briefly finish uh, with Matthew chapter 28, which is the very last verses of Matthew's gospel, which is what also is called the Great Commission. The 11 disciples went to the hill in Galilee where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshiped him even though some of them doubted. Jesus drew near and said to them, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Go then to all peoples everywhere and make them my disciples. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey everything I have commanded you, and I will be with you always to the end of the age. Jesus established his church, gave authority to those disciples so they can preach and baptize to everyone so that the love of God could be known. And he promises not for a hundred years, not for a thousand years, not for two thousand years, but to the end of the age. This is why we have the church, so that this message of God's love, of God's redemption, can be passed on to all people. So we pray for the church. We pray that even in the midst of scandal, that the mission can continue, and that even though as flawed as we can be, that is precisely through those flawed men the church grew, and it's precisely through flawed men like me and all the other priests can speak on that Christ continues to love his church through us. Thank you. Good evening, everybody. So it was... Um April of 2008, Pope Benedict was uh, visiting the United States. Uh, he was here for five days. I'm sure most of you remember it. Um, it's a big deal. I mean, whenever the Pope comes, that's a big deal, right? It was also um, maybe kind of uniquely a big deal because this was his. This was the first Pope after John Paul II. So this was the first time. And what was, what was he? He was over 25 years Pope. So for, for a lot of people, John Paul, certainly young people, that was the only Pope that people knew, and he was kind of a rock star. Uh, so now this guy was having to, in some respects, fill the shoes of this giant. Um, I was the vocation director at the time, and uh, 2008. What grade were you in? Don't even tell me. I don't want to know. I don't want to know. Um, because I was in the vocations office, 
I uh, was able to get tickets to these events over the course of most of these days. Uh, I had this group of sort of prospects, guys that were thinking about the priesthood, so certainly these would have been great opportunities to hopefully excite them about the church and possibly a, a religious vocation. So I got these tickets. Um, one was a mass at Yankee Stadium. There was another event at uh, St. Joseph's Seminary where Dominic presently studies. I also got to go to the White House. Um, I didn't get tickets through the church, but I, my brother had a contact with somebody in the, uh, the Bush administration at the time. So that was amazing. We were inside, you know, uh, right there at the White House. That was, I guess, the day he, ar he arrived, or maybe the next morning. So it was really very exciting, very exciting couple of days. Three out of these five days, I was in the company of, uh, of the Pope. The Mass at Yankee Stadium was probably the highlight for me. Um, I got to celebrate the Mass. I also was able to help out with communion. And it was just very powerful. Very, uh, I'll always remember that, just uh, kind of witnessing people, the faith of people. It's just, it's, you can't not be inspired and just literally kind of walking through the stadium and leaning over railings with the Blessed Sacrament. People, you know, it certainly wasn't a church setup, so it was just very different, but very real. And we were given these very specific instructions where we were assigned a section and uh, security was a big factor. So basically, I, I, I had my section. I remember I was over kind of near first base, maybe up one of the levels. And after communion, after my section was done, I had to go back down to the, to the, to the field, kind of right over my home plate. And I, would, I was to give the, the Blessed Sacrament, whatever I had left over, to the person in charge, somebody from the archdiocese. So I did that, and uh, I handed him the ciborium, and then I was supposed to kind of keep going in this direction toward home plate, and I kind of did a double take, and I, I, I realized I was only about 10 feet from the dugout, the Yankee dugout, and I kind of looked at it, and I was thinking, wow, this is, this is kind of cool. I mean, I've never been this close to a major league dugout. So I waited a minute, and a couple of the other priests who were helping with communion, they were behind me, and I stepped away, and I let them pass. And then I walked over toward the dugout. Um, there was a cop there kind of standing. Um, I just kind of gave him a nod. He gave me a nod back, and I looked official, so he didn't stop me. So now I was in the dugout, kind of walking around, just checking out. And the mass wasn't even done yet at this point, but um, everybody was watching the Pope. Nobody was watching me, so I was just kind of enjoying this moment, and then I looked a little bit further, and I realized, oh, man, that's like where the, that's where the locker room is, like through the end of the dugout. So I looked a little bit more, and I said, well, I'm not stopping here, so I kept going um, and got to the uh, entrance of the locker room, and there was uh, another cop, and I gave him another nod, and um, I was dressed, you know, I'm wearing my vestments, so I'm looking very official. Um, I got a hello father, and I just, so now I'm roaming around the Yankee 
the Yankee locker room. It was just kind of a, sur a surreal moment. Um, and I'm a Met fan. Like, it wasn't even... But it was still pretty cool. Um, and I know why, because I just knew I was in a special place. Well, if you care about baseball, it was a very special place. Really kind of a historical place. Like, you really couldn't not acknowledge the specialness of what had happened in that place over many years. You know, the Yankees have retired 23 numbers. <laughs> Amazing. 23 players have had their numbers retired. The Yankees have won 27 World Series, which averages out about every two and a half years, they win a World Series. 44 Yankees are in the Hall of Fame. Yankees have won, like I said, 40. The next team, the number two team to have won World Series is the Cardinals, 11. So the Yankees have won 40, and the next best is 11. You know, sometimes you just have to, I think, respect the history. Sometimes you just have to respect the, the tradition and the contribution of those things which are impressive. And like I said, it's not so easy for a Met fan. But if you don't, then it's not really honest. So why the church? I mean, it's what we're talking about tonight, and I guess from different directions. Why the church? Why our church as opposed to other ones? Well, let's look at our history and our tradition and our contribution. I think that's a start. When I was at Hofstra, when I was a chaplain there, I remember uh, there, were, there was this kid I knew. Uh, he was pretty active in the Catholic scene, and he was a very smart kid and very, uh, pretty, pretty bold, like very unapologetic about his, his faith. Um, didn't really hesitate to kind of do battle with people who had issues with the church. And I remember him, uh, actually it wasn't even him, it was a friend of his telling me about what happened to this kid. He was in class one day and I guess the professor was really just sort of dismissing the role of the Catholic Church and more than dismissing, was really very critical of the church in history. And, uh, and students were kind of affirming it, not really knowing anything, but, you know, they were like totally with him and supporting him, this professor. And then this kid spoke, and the, the, his friend kind of told me the kind of almost the drama of it. He said, uh, you know, you're just not right. You're just not being accurate historically. And I guess the professor kind of got pushed back a bit. He wasn't expecting that. 
And this kid went on to talk about the contributions of the church over the course of our, 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 from the start. He talked about science, this sort of false notion that the church is anti-science. It's like completely the opposite historically. I didn't know this. I read this yesterday that a, the Big Bang Theory, that was, that was sort of discovered or by a Catholic priest. He talked about this kid, the university system in Europe a thousand years ago, and if it wasn't for us, it really wouldn't have happened. Talked about art, music. I mean, just walk into a beautiful Catholic church and say no more. Talked about the monasteries during the Dark Ages, how they pretty much preserved and books and literacy, culture, when the whole world had kind of gone dark and there was light in these monasteries. Talked about charities, just the charitable nature of the church. I read this uh, yesterday too. I didn't, I didn't know this, that it's a description of the early chair, the church in really almost, uh, you know, the first few centuries and how we were concerned about other people. No surprise, right? We, we are concerned about other people. But in the, in the Roman Empire, there was, that was not a, that wasn't. Everything was tribal. You cared about your people. You cared nothing about strangers. The weak and the vulnerable, like unless they were yours, you didn't care. And this strange group of Christians started to say, no, like, she's a widow. I mean, I know you don't know her. I know you're not related to her, but she's a widow. She needs help. This guy who's in prison, yeah, you never met him, but he's alone and he's struggling. And we need to, and however we can, be present to him. The poor. Like this was just sort of a, I guess it was sort of a, a foreign concept. The women. Acknowledging the rights of women, which did not, which were non-existent. And this crazy little group of Christians was saying, wait, wait a minute, like, all people need to be respected, which was so not what that culture was about. Anyway, I guess, according to this kid's friend, he kind of silenced this teacher because he just responded with facts, historical facts. And hey, and throughout all of that great stuff, of course, there was a lot of not great stuff, but there was an awful lot of great stuff. So we're a part of a great group with a religious equivalent of the Yankees, I guess. If the, if the church was a baseball team, we'd be the Yankees. It's a little bit like, you know, remember, we all know it's a wonderful life, the premise, 
What would, it, what would life have been like if George Bailey hadn't been born? How things would be so different? What would society look like if had there never been a Catholic church? I think those dark ages would have been darker and longer. But you know, here I think is where the Yankee comparison maybe ends. You know, there's a, and actually in the Yankee, uh, I don't remember seeing this, but I've seen pictures of this in one of the hallways leading to the, to the dugout, I mean, to the locker room. There's a sign up over top, and it's a quote from Joe DiMaggio. And it says, I want, to thank God, I want to thank the good Lord for making me a Yankee. Well, God's not a Yankee fan. Clearly not a Met fan. <laughs> but I think God is a church fan. He's not always proud of his church but he's a fan of it because it's his, because he started it. Maybe the difference between, you know, comparing the church to any other organization is what Dominic referenced, these keys. No sacred keys were given to to the Yankees. No sacred keys were given to any group other than us. I remember going about 25 years ago. I was a relatively young priest. I was about two or three years ordained, and I went on retreat. I went up to Larchmont, New York. There's a retreat house up there, and it's run by, at the time it was run by this priest, great, pretty legendary priest, his father, Benedict de Grishel, he was a Franciscan, and he started this Franciscan order that's now very much present and alive in the church. The Franciscan Friars of the Renewal, they're called. And I was kind of going through a tough time at that point. I was in a, people I was working with in my parish, I was struggling with, and we were kind of coming from different, I don't know, visions of church, and there was a big age difference between, I mean, I was, 30, and they were twice that at least. Um, and I was just wasn't, I wasn't in a great place. And uh, I asked him if we could talk one night. And we went out. We went out for this walk. And he was so great. He kind of listened and great sort of spiritual resource. He was a psychologist. And I was just telling him about the church. And again, this is a quarter of a century ago. And then sort of being a little discouraged about aspect in my own little world, but even broader, decline, decline in aspects of the church. And I remember he gave, us, he gave me this image. I'll, I'll always remember it. He said, uh, it's a boat. We're like a, big, we're like a big, lurching, lumbering boat, the church is. We move slow. It takes a long turn, long time to change direction. That can be frustrating. And then he said, yeah, and this church is, uh, he was prophetic. He said, it's, it's taken on water. Like water's coming up over the, onto the deck. 
And he said, uh, he, he said, I don't think the church, I don't, the ship's going to go down. The ship the way it looks, the boat the way it looks, this isn't gonna, it's not going to make it. And I was a little stunned by that. But then he said, you know what, but on the deck of the boat, there are lifeboats. And he said, before the boat goes down, certain people, certain groups are going to jump in lifeboats. And they're going to make it. And he described who the people in the lifeboats were. He just said, they're going to be the pockets of spirit and passion and faith. They're going to be radical in how they live out the gospel. They're also going to be joyful. And they're going to be bold. They'll be authentic. They'll be about service and sacrifice. They'll just be on fire. So the big boat will go down and you'll have like these little lifeboats. And he said eventually they're going to come together. And they'll kind of join. And the boat will get bigger again. And he was like, it may not be in our lifetime. What was so great about what he said was, first of all, I thought, I think he's right about that. But this was more of what he didn't, it was more of how he said it. It was like, what was so implied in that was, the church isn't going anywhere. Like, the the church not being isn't an option. That's, that's never going to happen. It may look different, but it's not going to disappear. Like, that was just, I remember finding probably m- most hope in that. It wasn't what he said. It was kind of the, the confidence with which he spoke. Like, we're not going anywhere. And it wasn't like this sort of, you know, Pollyanna, all is good. It was just like God is with us. He gave us the keys. Like there is no other place to go. We just need to make this one more like it was meant to be. You know, the Yankees don't always win. They win a lot. Historically, they've done, like I said, look at those stats. But they've had losing seasons. And so is the church. And maybe in some respects we're in one now. But it's not lost. Because he's part of it. And because of those keys. So we remain in hope. And we still stand. So another reason why we have um, these nights is because we want to offer opportunities for the people of the church to actually interact with the church. Um, A lot of times it seems like we're just passive in the pews and we just listen and listen and listen and we're not able to engage So those index cards and pens are in your pews. We're going to give you about two minutes. Uh, We really encourage you. It's anonymous. You don't have to put your name on it. We're going to collect it. No one's going to know it's you. Ask an honest question. Ask a question maybe that you've always wanted to know about the church or about faith, about our faith. 
Um, and Father Brian and Deacon Dominic are going to do the best to answer those questions right now. So let's take two minutes. Please, please, even if you feel like oh, those asking questions isn't for me, we encourage you to, to write down a question that we can discuss. So two minutes. Thanks for these questions. The first one we're going to do is, uh, and Father Brian, they, and Deacon Dominic, you both have a microphone underneath your chair that you can use. Um, how do we know that the Catholic Church is the true church? Deacon Dominic? Faith. <laughs> I don't know. Um, yeah, obviously, I think sometimes we get a little bit of confusion, so we need to be clear with our terms. So when we say church, what do we mean? Now, I think, what did Jesus say in the end? Baptize all nations. So when we say the word church, what we mean is that that includes Lutherans, that includes Pentecostals, that includes anyone with a valid baptism. So when we say the church, it's, we, you know, it's almost like a, like, like a Venn diagram almost. So um, church, it's like this big circle, right? And, you know, we can say the Catholic Church is in the middle, like it's within the circle. It, it contains the fullness of the Christian tradition, and, but that Lutherans, Pentecostals, they're still part of the church. So we can refer to our Lutheran brothers as our brothers in Christ, we can, our sisters in Christ. We can refer to, um, you know, uh, Methodists and all those other Christian denominations as part of the church. We're not limited, but th the distinction that we would make is that the Catholic Church contains the fullness of the tradition of the church. And so the question is, well, how do we know that the Catholic Church is really the true or the fullness of the church rather than the Lutherans or the Pentecostals or, and I, I know it, gets, it goes a little, gets a little complicated, but maybe one thing I would, I would kind of point out is that what divides the Lutherans or the, the Protestant denominations, or let's not forget about the Orthodox, Orthodox Church, right? Obviously, there's also the Eastern Orthodox Churches, so there's a lot of denominations, and there's a lot of disunity within the churches, so sometimes that can be a problem. Um, but the point that I, maybe I would make is that maybe let's, let's just stick with the Protestants, because that's probably what the majority would, would say is uh, the biggest differences, um, is the question of Scripture. Lutherans believe in sola, uh, fides and sola scriptura, meaning they believe faith alone, Bible alone. That's sort of like the, we don't need the hierarchy, we don't need the Pope, we don't need the sacraments. Those are all nonsense. That's sort of like, not, I don't want to say nonsense, I don't want to be undermine them, but they, they sort of put the emphasis on the, on the Bible, on the Word of God. Okay. Well, who determines the Word of God? You know, what came first? It's almost like the chicken and the egg. What came first? The, the church or the scriptures. And I think the point can be made is that there, there's a unity between the two, but that Jesus, before he does anything, he chose as the apostles, he chose men. And so that the Catholic Church, this word of God, this power and authority was given to 12 apostles, 12, and then these 12 apostles then passed on that authority to the bishops. And this is the tradition that's been going on for 2,000 years until the time of Luther, who, who broke away from the, from the church and founded the Lutheran church. Um, and so the, the, the way that I would kind of answer that question is that Jesus founded the church first, and then the scriptures or the word of God came forth 
from the church. It came forth from the apostles. Um, there's, that's sort of like the, the way I would go. I don't know if Father Brian if, has anything to add to that, but it gets a little complicated theologically, so I don't want to... <laughs> I think the next question, um, kind of two people asked similar ones. Uh, one was, uh, Yankee Stadium is filled on Sundays. Um, how do we fill the church, and how do we, how do we retain young people, uh, young families, uh, the question was about people who are 40 and younger and their kids who are leaving the church. How do we keep them here and how do we fill the church on Sundays? Father Brian, you have a um, comment on that? There's actually, a, I also got a third Yankee Stadium question. It says, Father, when you were at Yankee Stadium, did you think about stealing home plate? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't. I, sh- I should have, but I didn't. Um, is... The uh, full-on Sundays, though, I think that's a, that's a great question. Um, how do you fill the church on Sunday? Well, if, we, if anybody had the, the, the absolute answer to that, they'd be, they'd be pretty rich, I guess. Um, of course, there's so many, so many people within the church trying to, trying to figure that out. Um, you know, I, I find my, my quick response to that is, or, or very practical response to that is usually... Uh, I think when you come to Mass on Sunday, uh, at least this was my experience when I was on that side of the fuse, um, you know, when you go to Mass on Sunday, uh, if there's a, a sense of community, like you feel like you're in a place where, uh, you know, you're not, you're, not a, you're not a stranger among strangers, uh, if the, uh, the preaching, like if the message is, is uh, well done and you're, you know, you're, you're uh, affected in a positive way about that, maybe a challenging way. I think the music is a really important piece. I mean, uh, surveys sort of argue, make that point to the, the places that are doing well, churches that are kind of thriving, uh, whether they're Catholic or not, a lot of the Pentecostal ones, this would be the case too, uh, really inspired preaching and really great music. Um, you know, I remember, I, again, you know, before I was a priest, if you, you know, the, you, at the end of Mass, if you had, if you had a good experience of a, of a good homily, you kind of, you walked back to your car with a, a bounce in your step. You were kind of, and if you really didn't, if it was a real sleeper, like you were f- falling asleep at the red light almost, like you just were kind of, it, 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 it had an effect, and I think music, same way, so that would be practical stuff. I also just think the, the broader, more philosophical question would be family life how do we how do we speak to to families today and find ways of of pulling them in you know religious ed what we're trying to do a little bit more now of is um reach out to parents i think and i think we're doing a very good job uh working with the kids we've got some really very good people uh witnessing great catechists and Mike and Tim, these guys are kind of run the whole program. Jerry McKay. Um, so we're, the product we're offering is good. I think part of the difficulty is um, they're just not, it's not being reinforced at home. It ought to be the opposite. They should be getting it first at home, and what we do is we reinforce it. But it's kind of the opposite. Um, so the, the point there would be, I think we've got to find ways of getting to parents and maybe in some cases even um, helping them to, to, to be better 
catechists in a way, helping them to be better witnesses, teaching them the basic stuff, teaching them the prayers, certainly practicing the faith, um, talking about God and, and faith. So if we make God, if we make Christ important to mom and dad, it's just going to trickle down. So maybe getting to the families is a big piece. Yeah, on, on this past day, Tuesday night, we had our first parent event, Reimagining Religious Ed, where we, the parents got a handout and a talk on what to do this month with their children at home, because hearing it from the parents is just going to make it, um, you know, it's going to be more impactful than any priest or what the church can say to a, to a eight-year-old, nine-year-old, ten-year-old. It's what mom and dad say at home. So that's something new we're trying here. The next question, we'll take two more, guys, because I know uh, we're a little over an hour at this point. Um, which never happens with Father Brian, but, uh, sorry, Father, just kidding, just kidding. <laughs> uh, um, the role of women in church is uh, a, few, a few questions we got on that is, what is the role of women in church? Uh, why is it different than men? Uh, Deacon Dominic, could you speak a little bit about that? I can try. Um, yeah, I mean, obviously, the kind of question that I'm hearing is, well, why can't women be ordained priests? Why, do, why don't women take more leadership in the church? And I mean, obviously this is a complicated question. I mean, so maybe I'll tackle maybe in terms of the question of women ordination. And the, the point that I would make is, is two, is that in the scriptures we read that there's an image, a very powerful image between Christ and the church. And the way it's described is it's described as a marriage that Christ is married to the church. And that, that image is so important. There's a masculine and a feminine mode in that relationship, in that, in that symbolism, that image. And that that image is meant to be passed on. That two weeks ago, when I was ordained a deacon, I made a promise of celibacy to forsake marriage, to give up my own family and the possibility of my own children. Precisely for what reason? So that I could be devoted so full-heartedly to the church of God. In some sense, I share in the marriage of Christ and the church. And that very often we speak of the priests as being married to the church, and that's expressed through the local parish, through the local diocese, that wherever I am assigned in Rockville Center, I am devoted, as a husband is devoted to his wife, that I am devoted to the people of God as Christ was devoted to the church by laying down his life, and that there's, a, there's a, something masculine about that. There's something about that is almost like a soldier going out to war, that he lays down his life for his nation and that the priest is called to do the same, to be in persona Christi, in the image of Christ for the world. Um, I made that promise as a deacon. I'll continue to make that promise as a priest, God willing, in six months in June, and that, that it's that image of the marriage. Um, so that's why women have a different role in the church than men, that the priests are, act, are called to act in, fully in persona Christi, to fully act in Christ, and that women doesn't mean they don't have a role. 
absolutely, I would never say that. I mean, if you look at most parishes, they're mostly run by women. The priests happen to be the pastor mostly. So there's always um, an important, and maybe sometimes we've not always been the best, especially maybe we have not been the best in inviting women to have a greater role in the church. But I think you're starting to see that in the church with the Vatican. Um, you see more women religious, more even lay women uh, taking greater responsibilities within the Vatican. And you see this also within the diocese. Um, and maybe just one final point is that we don't want to clericalize the laity. I think that sometimes we, we get that issue that we, we worry about clericalism within the church, but we don't want to clericalize the laity and that, and that there's more to being, look at Mother Teresa. She did a way more, she was way more powerful and way more, uh, had way more authority than most priests did in the church. Why? Because she lived a life of holiness. And that we can look at these women religious. They did, or Catherine of Siena, another woman religious. You don't necessarily have to be an ordained priest or an ordained minister to have a voice or to have power in the authority of the church. Because the true power, true authority comes from holiness. And uh, I know, again, I know we're brief on time, so I don't want to. That's okay. Father Brian? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, this, this question and conversation really could go on sort of endlessly. Um, I mean, one, one point I would make would be, I think where the church, where reform is needed in the church would be some of the structural pieces, aspects of the institution. And what I mean is um, kind of like power within the church lies almost always with, among clerics, among bishops pre and priests. Um, you know, and as a result, like when decisions are being made about lots of, lots of aspects of the church, you've only got men in the room making decisions. Uh, and that's just objectively a limitation, right? You know, you don't, you just don't have, like, you know, you know, Deacon Dominic, you were talking about this before, like kind of like just like the, the feminine difference in the feminine perspective. So um, that doesn't mean, so when I say like, structural changes could happen. I'm not, I'm not even talking about women being priests. I'm saying women being at important meetings in the church, whether it's locally in a diocese or it's in, or it's in Rome, um, that should happen and that could happen. And it has happened somewhat, but it could be more. And um, our next question, what do you say to evangelicals um, or other Christians uh, who say, you know, we don't need the Catholic Church, uh, or, or similar questions where, like, you know, well, I can be a good person, I don't need to go to church, or I don't need to be a member of the church, um, I don't need to be an active participant in the church in order to be a good person or to get to heaven, um, so why do we need the Catholic Church? Deacon Dominic or Father Brian? You know, I, I, I talked to somebody recently, um, she was talking about, you know, who's the, the, the most recent uh, sort of scandalous stuff in, you know, uh, the Cardinal McCarrick, and, um, and she was just very, uh, you know, very sort of disillusioned. It's like, oh my gosh, you know, more of this, and, and we all were. Um, and she said to me, uh, she actually left uh, six or eight years ago, stopped, and she, she started going to a kind of an evangelical church where there was... Um, well, you didn't have that scandal going on, and uh, there was a kind of, she felt, a, a greater sense of community, and 
you know, the, the Sunday experience was more of a celebration, uh, but then said, you know, after whatever it was, a year or two, as much as she liked aspects of it, she said she just missed, she just knew she, she needed the Eucharist, she needed the sacraments, um, and she came back, like she just said, like that was, parts of what they offered were fantastic, and flat out better than what we offer, you know, and I think that's where we, we should be challenged. It's like, yeah, like, the, you know, we're, we are the, the true church in a sense, but that doesn't mean other churches don't kick our butts in, in lots of, in, in various aspects. Um, and I think it's always to be on kind of like, for us to be on the lookout for that, like, okay, where do we need to be just a more authentic church, a more evangelical church? But the sacraments, the, the, the question was like sacraments, kind of like a, sort of an ongoing part of what we were talking about tonight. We have the Last Supper. We have Jesus in the Eucharist. Um, that's not the only way we can encounter Jesus, but it's the most substantive one. And there's the difference. There's the difference. Yeah, I mean, obviously, there's so many evangelical brothers I've met, especially when I remember in college, like, who knew the scriptures inside and out? They were very good people, amazing people who were doing wonderful things. And, you know, so the question, well, why should I become a Catholic or why should I come to the Catholic Church? It's not maybe so much that you can be a better Christian, but rather to ask yourself what Father Brian was saying, you know, I want you to become a Catholic because to enter into the fullness of the life Jesus wants to share with us, right? That the sacraments is the way that Jesus wants to fully reveal himself. Each of the sacraments, penance, baptism, Eucharist, uh, anointing of the sick. These are all ways of, we use physical signs to touch the divine, and that the sacraments are indispensable of being, of communicating God's presence in the world. So it's not so much, I would say, you know, all evangelicals can't be good Christians, or evangelicals are sort of lesser Christians, but rather, I, the way I would phrase that, you know, if you, if you really want to enter into the fullness of the life of Christ, you want to enter into the fullness of beauty, truth, love, that the sacraments uh, which is founded in the Catholic Church and also in the Orthodox Church. I don't want to dismiss Orthodox churches as well. Um, that there's there's something there's there's an encounter there that um, that runs much deeper. You know, to, to hear the priest say, "I absolve you of your sins in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit." You know, take this body and eat. You know, it's just it, those things are so powerful, um, and that's something I would want to share with my. You know, if you have something good, you want to share that, and that's why I would kind of wait of maybe perhaps presenting to someone who might ask a question like that. Great. Um, well, in closing, um, I want to just say what one person wrote down on the card. It wasn't a question. It was a statement uh, that the church is not dead because we are the church. And I think that is so true. Um, so thank you to whoever wrote that. But yes, the, we are so grateful for the amazing priests that we have and, and the bishops and, and the popes and the history of the church. But we the people, we the parishioners, we're the church. And I think we are called to do more. And I think as, a, as the layperson up here, a lot of times throughout my, my life, I'd be like looking to the priests, looking to the church. What are they going to do for me? What are they going to do for us? And I think it's time that we also look at ourselves. Someone else wrote, how do I get more involved in the church? And I think those... That statement and that question is what we need to ask ourselves as well as, 
what can I do as a layperson, whether you're, you're married with kids or, or, or you are single, you're a teenager, or you're uh, retired, whoever you are, how do we own our church? How do we, not that we ever lost our church, but how, how do we take back the church and make it, make it great? When we look back at that Louis Zamperini video, how do we focus in on, on the cross and on Jesus and make the church, make Beach Catholic the church that it's meant to be? I think that's the main message that we want to walk away with tonight. Practical things. Um, we're going to put up a code up on the TV. When you leave, if you scan it with your phone, it'll take you to a, a digital handout for tonight, things that we talked about, and also two videos. If you don't have your phone with you, you can't figure it out. If you go to beachcatholic.com and click the top link on God's Not Dead, it'll take you to a document about the things that we talked about tonight. Um, things from the church, some Bible passages, uh, the beliefs of, uh, of Catholics, and then also two videos um, one from a pretty famous Catholic speaker about why we don't leave the church, why he's not leaving the church, and another video from a, a priest, Father Mike Schmitz, on uh, why be Catholic and not just Christian. So that digital handout you'll be able to get on the website or if you want to try to scan the code on your way out. Um, events coming up to t keep an eye out for in uh, Point Lookout, there will be a movie night um, I think the, the movie theater down here is closed, right, right, Father? So this is, we're trying to, maybe we'll, uh, it's free. We're not taking any business away from anyone, but it'll be, uh, it's a wonderful life on December 4th. It's a Friday night. So a great night for anyone and everyone to come out and watch a movie, a great movie as we get into the Christmas season. We also have a Christmas holy hour um, Thursday, December 17th at 7.30 right here in this, uh, at St. Ignatius. Um, so those are kind of the two events that are coming up uh, as we enter into December. Um, and I would ask Deacon Dominic to kind of lead us in a final prayer. We can talk about the church all, all, all night and all, uh, all day, but um, I think it's, we need to pray for the church. Um, so Deacon Dominic, would you lead us in a final prayer? In the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit, Lord Jesus, we thank you for gathering us here tonight. Purify our church for all the stains that she may have caused in the last century or even the last dec few decades. Purify her, cleanse her, and pray that renewal, a new foundation may be built upon new men and women who will take on the cross to follow Jesus Christ more closely in a world that's turning away from you. Cleanse us, purify us, and be with us that your love, your truth, your goodness may shine in each and every one of us so that the world may see the light of the church in us and in the people who we encounter. And we pray, the, we pray the prayer that Jesus taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace.